Well, we're right in the middle of a series uh, in the life of Joseph called Dreamers in the Hands of an Angry God, uh, Loving God. Sorry. (laughs) Sometimes the jokes are accidental. Um, Dreamers in the Hands of a Loving God. It's about Joseph and his dad, Jacob, and it's about the rest of us, too. And uh, to to speak on... uh, Joseph's time in prison, Joseph served a a term in prison um, after he was falsely (laughs) accused uh, of attempted rape, and uh, he was in the king's prison, and the Lord was still with Joseph. So uh, to bring us this word, I'm delighted to introduce to you uh, a friend and a mentor, Father Stephen Gautier. Father Stephen is an associate priest at Church of the Resurrection, our sister church in Wheaton, Illinois. And he's also the canon theologian for the diocese that we're in, the Diocese of the Upper Midwest. So I'm uh, privileged to to invite Stephen up, and let's pray for Stephen as he begins. Lord, thank you so much for your loving hand and for the way you have guided Father Stephen. And we pray that through his preaching, we would encounter you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you very much. Uh, it's always really a joy to be here at, uh, at Emmanuel. Uh, the bishop sends his warmest uh, personal greetings to all of you, and he hopes that we will see many of you at the Revive Conference, which is our whole diocese, which is uh, going to start this Thursday evening. So if you can, we'd just love to see everyone there. As Father Aaron has said, this is a sermon series, as you know better than I, since this is my introduction to it, Dreamers in the Hands of the Loving God, Joseph, his dad, and the rest of us. Um, And our topic today is the valley of the shadow of death. We have the reading we had today from Joseph in prison. So let's take it where we are. Right now we're in the middle of the story of Joseph. The story thus far is Joseph loses his mom when he's a young boy. We forget about that fact. He lost his mother. Um, One of the things his father, reasons his father was so solicitous for him. Uh, We also know that age 17, pretty young, at age 17 he lost the rest of his family. He lost his freedom, and he was exiled to his homeland and had to speak a foreign language the rest of his life. So, just when you think, gee, things couldn't get worse. Well, you're wrong. Okay, that's the story of today's reading. That's where we were in our last episode. Now what we have is we have Joseph is falsely accused of a sex crime. And then, after patiently waiting, he loses the golden opportunity to get out. You know, here at this moment, he, he, he has the correct interpretation for the dream, And it's hard not to have your heart break when you think of where he's been and when he pleads with the the cupbearer, only remember me. By the way, the word remember in the Old Testament, we might miss this, has a different meaning than it has for us. We tend to think of forget and remember like, gee, what was that? Is when they talk about God remembering Sarah, it doesn't mean he forgot about her. Oh, that's it. It means to take action. So remember, remember in the Old Testament doesn't just mean to come back to mind, it means to actually take action. When it says God remembered Israel, it means he kept his promise. He kept the promise he had made, and now it becomes real. God remembered. So he says, remember me when it is well with you. And please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, to get me out of this place. For I was stolen out of the land of the Hebrews. And here also I've done nothing that should put me into this pit. And then the awful words, the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. He just chose to leave him aside. Now, it took, I love this, the actual language in Genesis says, after two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed, not just two years, after two whole 
long years, Pharaoh has his dream. Joseph has now spent 13 years, almost half of his life, in slavery and in prison, when finally we have the dreams we get to today. Now let's look at what we've gone through here. Joseph is totally faithful to God. Never is there any indication in his youth at any other time that he was anything except faithful to God. And notice the things that happen to Joseph are not mistakes. They are evil. They are conscious evil. His brothers, <laughs> we can all, what a family, okay, jealousy and betrayal. Later on, the brothers tell us if we need to think of how horrible this was, what happened with Joseph. They said to one another when they thought they were in trouble later on, they said, in truth, we're really guilty concerning our brother. We saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. So jealousy and betrayal of their own brother, treachery in the case of Potiphar's wife, out-and-out treachery, and the ingratitude, criminal ingratitude. Again, this wasn't that it slipped his mind. It simply wasn't convenient. Later on, you'll notice when he does remember is when he can get ahead from it. Later on in Pharaoh's court, wait, wait a second, they need an interpreter. I bet this will get me a step ahead. Suddenly, his, his memory is restored, miraculously. Okay, so this is the situation. God, Joseph is totally faithful, and the things that happened to him were truly evil. Not mistakes, not just something that people were letting go. Bad things happened to Joseph. Joseph later on tells us what the message was for him. How does Joseph, as the authoritative interpreter, tell us of what this meant in his life? He says later on in Genesis 50, the end of his life, uh, he says, as for you, speaking to his brothers who were still afraid that he hadn't really forgiven them, he said, as for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. He never denied that this wasn't, oh, I, there's a misunderstanding, I'm sorry we didn't get along. You did mean it for evil. But God meant it for good. The words are important, but God meant it for good. There's a general principle that we have here. God is sovereign, meaning that God can actually make use of evil. We're used to the evil one can do nothing. After all, evil is helpless. All it can do is negative things. It can't build, it can only destroy. It perverts. It takes good things and twists them. That's all the enemy can do. He can create nothing. He's, he's sterile. He can create nothing. There's no life. It's just death. God can actually use, just as he uses evil and twists, to, uses good and twists it to evil, God can actually make use of evil for good. A classic case the rabbis point out to us in the rabbinic commentaries is Pharaoh. Why was Pharaoh's heart hardened? Well, the scriptures give us two answers. Sometimes they say Pharaoh hardened his heart, and other times they say God hardened his heart. Well, the rabbis were very strict on the scripture means what it says, so they both must be true. How are they true? Pharaoh chose to harden his heart, but God used his sin to bring about good. So in that sense, God, hardened, God made use of Pharaoh's hardened heart, but Pharaoh hardened his heart. You know, there's an image we might miss in the New Testament that's very similar. Is in God's sovereignty, everything will work towards God's plan. It's just the classic thing we might miss is the, the, uh, the image of a tree in the New Testament, a fruit tree. Remember, talk, Jesus talks about trees bearing fruit. They have to bear fruit. 
Do you remember once he talks about a tree, he says a parable, he said there's this tree out there, and for two years it didn't bear any fruit. So they said, what are we going to do with it? We can't waste the ground in the Middle East. There simply is no ground to waste. And so he said, well, we can't waste the ground. There's not enough. Why don't we give it another year? We'll, we'll dig around it. We'll fertilize it. And then if it doesn't bear, what's going to happen? We'll chop it down. And what will happen? We'll use it for firewood, not to punish the tree. One way or another, a tree will serve. It will either keep us warm as firewood or it will give us food. But one way or the other, it will work for God's plan. The question is, would you, as a, as from the tree's perspective, would it be better to bear fruit or to be firewood? Okay. Now, in its starkest form, in its starkest form, God can actually take evil to destroy evil. There's a cryptic example of this, and then we see what it was fulfillment of in the New Testament. Remember, there's one, one of the days that the children of Israel were murmuring about God basically days that end in Y. And they were, they were murmuring it about God, and the serpents come and begin biting people, remember? And God, it's a strange episode, it seems to us, unless we understand what's the, what's the, what's the lesson being taught, is he tells them to make a brass serpent. And that anyone, remember the story, anyone who looks up at the serpent will be healed from the snake bite. What a strange story. What's the purpose is, ironically... He would use the very, it's a symbolic of the very agency of death. The very thing that brought death would suddenly, ironically, bring life. And Jesus later on says that's the perfect image in John's gospel of Jesus on the cross. What happens here is, is our supreme rebellion. Remember, the people who were crucifying Jesus were not trying to save the world. That wasn't their point to the bitter end. They were torturing him, mocking him, and killing him. They weren't performing a holy act. To the, it was evil from start to finish. It was the most evil act ever committed. And from that depth of evil, that cross was the stake that God drove into death's heart. So God made use of evil. Not only can he use evil to bring good, he can actually use evil to kill it, to bring it to destruction. Now, where does this bring us in the story of Joseph? Well, the church has always seen Joseph as a type, an image of Christ. Why? Well, so many things the church said, well, he was, first of all, described as the beloved of his father. With all the brothers, this was the one. This was the father's special son, like Jesus at his baptism. This is the son I love. You know, like Abraham with Isaac, you know. Take the son, the one you love, Isaac. This is the beloved son. He's rejected by his brothers out of jealousy. Remember in the New Testament, we emphasize in the stories that Pilate said he, know, he knew that the real reason they delivered Jesus was jealousy. He said that he wasn't fooled. Pilate realized this is all about jealousy. It wasn't about a crime. He sold for silver and handed over to foreigners. And then the evil that was done to him actually not only saved his whole family, saved his, the very brothers who killed him, but everyone else. Because remember, Joseph in Egypt, the famine descends over the whole earth, it says. Everyone went down, not just the Egyptians, everyone went down and was saved because of Joseph's position. So what happened to him not only saved the very brothers who had betrayed him, it actually fed the whole world. It was the food. He gave food. He fed the whole world that would have died. And they love the fact that he began his public life when he was 30 years old, as they tell us in the, in the account. 
Okay, so if we say that, okay, this is Jesus, Joseph is a, is a type of Christ, this brings us to the heart of how to understand this story for us as Christians. Let's look at Christ himself. Though we know that the word Christ, you know, Messiah, Mashiach, right, means the one who's anointed. The Christ is the anointed one, the Christos is the one who has an anointing. And what was an anointing for? An anointing was a way to set somebody apart for a mission, for a special purpose, a special way to solemnly set someone aside. And there were three situations where this was done in the Old Testament. Remember, kings of the Old Testament were anointed. They were set aside, marked by God for that purpose. Priests were set aside, were anointed with oil, you know, when they entered into their priesthood. And prophets were anointed. So Jesus has that office. His office as king was, what did kings do in the ancient world? They brought victory over the people's enemies. That was the chief. There was a military job, right? The job of a king in the ancient world was military victory, to protect you physically from your enemies. Victory over the enemy. So that was Christ, the king. As priest is to make an offering to reconcile people with God. That was the role of priest. In the pagan religions, it was to keep, you know, keep the gods at bay, to keep the gods happy on your side. But in the true faith, it was a matter of basically to keep people in the right place with God, offerings to God. And as a prophet, to bear faithful witness to God's message. Wasn't that the job of all the Old Testament prophets, to bear faithful witness to God? So what was Jesus' message that is the anointed one? He was all three. Normally, you could only be one. You were either a king or a priest, or a prophet. Jesus combined, that's what we call him, the anointed one. He's the only time where all three, every form of anointing and mission is united in one person. And in his case, it was his victory, was his ultimate victory over the supreme enemy, which is death. Right? Scripture described that the last enemy to be defeated is death. His priesthood is to make an offering which is so perfect that there will never have to be another offering again. The one-time perfect offering and finally, as prophet, to finally give us the absolute truth about God. Perfect witness. At least nothing, you know, like when you take an oath that says, to tell the truth, the whole truth. Nothing, an absolute perfect testimony for God. So that's the, the job of Jesus, right? His mission as the anointed one. King, priest, prophet. Where does that happen? Every one of those things happens at the cross. He accomplishes his misery as the obedience is through suffering. That's how they describe it in, in the book of Hebrews. Is how does Jesus do these three things? It's obedience through suffering. That is how Jesus accomplishes all three of those purposes, all on the cross. It's at the cross when he obeys the Father's will, right, that he triumphs over death. It's at the cross when he obeys the Father will he comes up with a perfect sacrifice for sin once and for all. It's at the cross if we want to know that how do we know God really loves us, look at the cross, the perfect testimony. God so loved the world that he gave his son. The perfect witness to who God is. Truth itself that we can see. The message is the messenger. All three of those happen at one moment, obedience through suffering. Now, it's, in, it's interesting here. Let's look at Peter's confession of faith which emphasized this, uh, this, this fact. Remember one day Jesus is talking to the disciples, and he says, who do people say I am? And they start giving answers. They start saying, well, some people think Elijah, and some say maybe John the Baptist has come back, or one of the prophets. And then he says, well, who do you say that I am? 
And Peter has the famous testimony, you're the Messiah. You're the Son of God. The Messiah. You are the anointed one. What does Jesus immediately say after that? The very next thing, all three accounts we have of this, and all, they're very careful on this. That's when he predicts his suffering. That's the first prediction. He says, the Son of Man has to be handed over and suffer many things. And remember, this is where Peter says, oh, Lord, it's not like that. He says, oh, no, not the suffering thing. And the point is, the suffering is essential to Jesus. That's what it means to be the He can't be one without the suffering. It's the obedience through suffering that accomplishes everything. That's what he says, behind me, Satan. That is what it is to be the Messiah. That's how all these things are done. You cannot separate the two. An interesting point, have you ever wondered about the strange story in Mark? that we have, a, we have a man who's being healed and of blindness and Jesus touches his eyes and it says, well, I can see people. He says, well, how, how does it look? And, and he says, I see people, but men look like they're walk, like trees walking around. And then Jesus does it a second time then he can really see fully. What's the point of that story? It comes immediately before this, showing that it's possible to sort of understand and say that Jesus is the Messiah it's like, yeah, it's true, but unless you get that that happens on the cross, you're still not really getting it. You're seeing men walking like trees. You don't really understand the suffering Messiah and uh, the Messiah until you understand that the suffering is inseparable. That's the message. Now, that's not the message. That's the yet message, but it's not the end of the story. What's the very next thing, no accident, that Jesus says after this? He says, who do you say I am? You're the Messiah of God. He said, the Son of Man must suffer. The very next thing that Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. He doesn't see some, some, some people will be asked to do heroic things. This is not like a graduate school for ambitious believers. He's saying anyone, any man, literally, literally, if any man would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. The message of Christ is the obedience through suffering is the same path for everyone. This is the path of the Christian. This is not an aberration. This is everyone's path. You know, it's, Paul says, you know, if we, if we die a death like his, you know, if we're joined to a death like his, that's how we have the resurrection. So, how can our suffering, so our suffering, we're, we're called to have that same path of obedience and suffering and trials. That's the call. Now we can say to ourselves, wait a second, how can my suffering have meaning? I can understand how Jesus, being the perfect son of God and sinless, how his sacrifice can have meaning for the world. That makes sense to me. But that's not me. I'm sinful, all these things. How can my suffering possibly have any meaning? beyond what it is, a frustration of purpose. Well, let's look at that. First of all, there's a fundamental gospel principle that excited the church a lot in the gospels that we might miss. Everything Jesus touches changes. I want you to remember that everything Jesus touches changes. Never the same again. This is why they do something different. We know that Jesus doesn't have to touch a leper to cleanse them. We have an example of the story of the ten lepers. Remember the ten lepers at a distance and they go off? Jesus doesn't have to touch people to heal them, but he goes out of his way to touch lepers. They tell us he actually touches them and cleanses them. Why? Because everyone knows when you touch a leper, you become unclean. They don't become clean. It's like a river flowing up upstream. 
turning around and going backwards. Jesus touches a leper, and instead of him becoming unclean, which is the world's reverse, suddenly the leper becomes clean. When Jesus is baptized, have you ever wondered why we have this? If you've ever seen it in a, in a traditional baptism with the Anglicans, uh, we put the, the candle into the water and bless the waters. Why? It's reminding us that the power of baptism comes from Christ's baptism, from his death. It comes from Christ. Water can't cleanse anything. It's water. What gives the power to the waters is Jesus. So remember, is when everybody else went down with John the Baptist's baptism, what did they do? They were going for the forgiveness of their sins. They were going to have their sins removed. When Jesus goes into the water, he takes on sins. He does the exact opposite. He gives the waters of baptism their power. He doesn't have sins removed. He takes them on. And what about his death? Instead of death being the end, it's the beginning. When Jesus dies, he brings life. Everything Jesus touches is different. We forget that we're members of the body of Christ. Do you remember what Jesus' comments to Saul is when Saul's persecuting the church and he's on the Damascus Road? What are the exact words of Jesus? It says, falling to the ground, this is speaking of Saul, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Not why are you persecuting my disciples, my friends, the people who are following me. Why are you persecuting me? The image, the body of Christ is not a metaphor. We truly read Ephesians. You know, that is the fullness of him who fills all in all. We truly are members, part of the actual body of Christ. So just as when the church is, per, is touched, Christ is touched. This is what Paul says now. That's why our sufferings take on meaning because, because we are members of the body of Christ, our sufferings are Jesus' sufferings if we give them to him. And anything Jesus touches has meaning. This is why Paul has that saying. He says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, that is the church. He's not saying there's anything lacking in, in Jesus. It's all Jesus. But he's saying the neat thing about being in the church is we are part of Jesus now. So now our sufferings themselves are part of Jesus' redemptive work because he makes them his own. Anything in the body becomes that. It takes its holiness from being part of Jesus. Our sufferings have meaning when given to God. So we know, like Joseph, that uh, it says in Romans, remember he said you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. We can say, like in the words of Romans, and we know that the, for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. He doesn't say only good things happen. Far from it. But he says all things work together for good. Just as we said everything God uses, he uses evil, he brings good. Anything that happens to us because we're in the body of Christ has, is changed in its power, becomes part of God's plan. And also, like Joseph... Remember, he said the thing about his sufferings is they brought life to others. What does Paul say? He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the same comfort we are, with which we ourselves are comforted. It's our sufferings that actually give us God's power to comfort others. There simply is no other way. We'll talk more about it. There is no other way to this goal. 
It said, remember in Hebrews, the son had to learn obedience. You know, Jesus, as a man, had to learn it through suffering. There wasn't another way. That is our path as well. Now, how do we take this royal road of obedience through suffering? What does it mean? There are three things to it, I think, that are important. The first thing is notice something that Jesus says. He doesn't say, when the cross is put on you, don't complain. He says, don't run away when the cross is laid on you, which could have been logical. Sometimes they'd take a prisoner and put the cross on their shoulder. He says, pick it up. The verb is always, take up your cross. So a critical notion of what makes it special, how do we join ourselves in Christ's work, is like Jesus saying, Father, this is not what I want, but if this is what you want, then I want it too. We, we accept, we embrace what God wants because God wants it. Remember, that's the theme of John's Gospel. He says, I don't have a separate will. He says, my food and my drink is to do the Father's will. This is where I am. That is, we take up our cross. We don't just live with it and go through it like we can't do anything else. No, we, it's the embracing it which makes... Mother Teresa famously said, she said, it's when things happen, it's just the big smile. It's the acceptance to God. If this is where you want me to be, then I want to be here too. That's a difference. That's a gift from God. It's a grace, but it's a grace that's always given. We can't will ourselves into it, but it's a grace if we ask that God will give us. And this is why, notice in Joseph, he's a perfect example. Joseph embraced his situation. He could have pouted. I mean, big time. I mean, there must be a nicer word for it. But, you know, as a slave, he could have just done the minimum amount of work. Look, they pretend to pay me. I pretend to work. You know, the kind of <laughs> we say in our jobs. Okay. <laughs> they, you know, so the people joke is they pretend to pay us, we pretend to work. Uh, but, you know, basically, a lot of people, why was he ambitious in that household? Is he was doing his job well. It's like Jeremiah. What did Jeremiah say to the exiles in Babylon when he said, you're going to be there a long time? He said, just, you know, he actually told them to embrace that. He says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles who I've sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for its welfare. In its welfare will you find your welfare. He asked them to actually embrace the situation. They be, that's how they became a blessing to nations, to embrace the situation. So the first thing about becoming, you know, realizing, sharing in, in Christ, being part of our sufferings, the body of Christ, is this is where you want me, I want, I'm engaged. I don't put up with it, this is where I want to be. I want to be fully in the place you have put me. I want to be truly you in this place, embraced like Joseph, not doing the minimum, getting by, embracing. The second thing is we suffer differently. Oh, we can't help suffering, but we suffer differently. In uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, it says, speaking of death, that you may not grieve as those who do not have hope. When I preach funeral sermons, I remind people, of course we grieve. Jesus wept with Lazarus, of course. But our grief is profoundly different. It's not like those who have no hope. And so here's what, we do not deny evil. This is very important. I think often we put a, a burden on people. We tell them when bad things happen, the cancer and things. We say to them, well, this is, there's nothing good. Cancer is evil. Death is evil. Suffering God hates it. There will be no suffering on God's holy mountain. The, the thing itself is evil. We can hate the thing. That's the point. It is evil. But we have confidence that God is so big that he can use it somehow, despite its evil character, for good. 
So God forbid we should tell people that, oh, this is a good thing, you know, that your child died. Of course it is. It's a horrible thing. But God can take even this horrible thing like he can take the cross and he can turn it around. Yes, it's evil. It's from the devil. It's from hell. But God is bigger. He can take even this like the cross and he can turn it around. And our supreme witness to the world. You know, the word martyrdom means witness in Greek. That's all the word martyr means. It's a witness. Our witness to the world is this. Remember in Philippians it says, the peace of God which passes all understanding. You know what that means? We go through those words, we say them all the time. What that means is this. In the ancient world and philosophy, they explained, you could, norm, you could explain why people were happy. You could look at their ex- circumstances. Like, this is like Aristotle, if you read his ethics. He famously starts out saying, call no man happy until he's dead because you don't really know if it's a comedy or tragedy to see the last act. But the basic point is we can explain happiness in terms of circumstances. A happy person has a happy family life and they see their children, there's no tragedies. When we say the peace that passes understanding, that what amazed people about the Christian martyrs, witnesses, was everything was going wrong and they were in joy. People actually converted during martyrdoms and were martyred because they wanted what the martyrs had. Can you imagine that? Their witness was so powerful. You can't fake this. Their witness was so powerful. And we've seen glimmers of it, haven't we? The last time I believe I was with you, I mentioned like, how the nation was moved. Remember when the Amish tragedy was, was, uh, was shot up? They went into a school and shot those children. That what was the Amish response as Christians? It was amazing. Their first concern was with the shooter's family. They could only imagine that kind of loneliness. They paid for the funeral and they went. People couldn't believe this. How do you explain that? And people said, boy, I wish I could read I, I wish I had that. That's the witness. So we take up our cross. We suffer differently. We, we don't, God forbid, we don't deny evil. Remember, all lies are from the devil, even well-intended ones. We don't have to lie for God. Evil is evil. We're saying God is bigger than evil. God, God can use this. And finally, our supreme witness is exactly when the world sees that we have a peace that doesn't depend on things working out for us then they will know the truth. So also another special comfort in all this is let me tell you, all of us who've been in in hard places, really, really bad places, is one of the things that strikes you, let's say like with a bad medical diagnosis, it's really an astounding thing what happens to you. And I think it's almost emblematic of what happens with Jesus in the garden. Remember Jesus goes to the garden, he says he's troubled to death, he's sweating blood. He's scared to death. And his friends keep falling asleep. And they were good friends. They really did want best. Why do they keep falling asleep? Anyone who's had the bad diagnosis knows the answer to this, is you go into a separate place. The minute those words go into the air, you're not in the same place. It's almost like you're in a haze. Everybody else is back here. And now you're here with the tumor. They're all back in another world. That just Your whole world has just changed in seconds. And they so want to be with you. They want, But they can't be. You're in the, that's why people have support groups. They just, they, people don't know who haven't been there. They want to know, but they can't. And there's a huge sense of loneliness. The people you're closest to are like the apostles. They keep trying to stay awake. They just can't. Now, a beautiful thing about Jesus, who's very alive and well, is that here is someone who truly has experienced everything we will experience. He won't fall asleep because he doesn't understand and wish he did. Traditionally, in the, in the medieval church, they talked about... I'm so sorry. Okay. I've officially apologized to the folks. Okay. <laughs> I will bear fruits worthy of repentance. Okay. 
But they talked about the five great sufferings of life, the greatest sufferings, and I've found it really powerful in my life to know these things, that Jesus has been there. The first one is that kind of gnawing anxiety. Something horrible really is going to happen. Jesus knew he was going to die the next day. And a horrible death, it wasn't maybe it will happen, it really was. That horrible sense of anxiety waiting for the inevitable to happen, that's the agony in the garden. When we have that, Christ is there with us. He knows that place. He's been there. And he'll be with us there too when that happens to us. And what about physical? I don't mean metaphorical suffering. I mean the real thing. I mean actual physical pain. The real thing. The scourging at the pillar. Jesus was whipped. That hurt. I mean it was excruciating. It was designed to cause pain. And it was very successful. What about grotesque humiliation. The crowning with thorns certainly seems to meet that. A public humiliation of everything in his ministry, everything he believed, publicly humiliated, dragged through the mud. Something I appeal to mothers here who understand this. You know, one of the things when things go bad, you can sort of curl up almost in fetal position, so to speak. Uh, mothers don't have that luxury. You know, no matter how sick you are, if you have kids, you're just going to have to get in and start moving anyway because they don't honestly care. Life has to move on. Well, the, well the, the way of the cross is like that. So many of us, horrible things are happening, and we don't even have the luxury of, of catching our breath. We have to keep moving on in spite of everything. Like Jesus walking that way of the cross, saying, if only I could eat, I don't even have the luxury to think about that, but there it is. Christ has been there. That's the way of the cross. And finally, you know, people talk about near-death experiences nonsense. Is There's nothing like looking at death. I mean, the real thing, saying this is me and I'm going to die, it looks different. Christ has been there because he's really died. He didn't get real close. He actually died. So the point, point in all of these things is not only does Christ share our sufferings, but even in the midst of them, we know we have someone right with us. All our friends are asleep. They wish they were there. They try really hard. God bless them. But we have Christ is right there with us at that, not only sanctifying them, but being with us as the one person who really does understand. So our conclusion then in all of this is evil does happen to faithful people. It's the story of Joseph and it's the story of Jesus, the one who did no wrong and was crucified. Joseph and Jesus truly are images one or the other. God is always bigger than the evil that we face. If he doesn't defeat the evil, he uses it to a greater purpose. But God is always, the evil is evil, but God is bigger than the biggest evil we will ever run into. And God invites us to allow our sufferings to become his own as members of his body. And we do that, they take on a profound meaning. They can become a source of life. When we accept Christ's sufferings this way, he will comfort us, the scriptures tell us, in a way that will allow us to comfort others in a way we never could before, in a very different place. And it also allows us to be an infallible witness to the world that our God is bigger. In a world that's skeptical, you're just like everybody else has philosophies and religions and things. When people see this, it cannot be faked. They know they've seen the real thing and they want it. I'll leave you with one thought. In the Western church, you may not know this, is we have various religious families or traditions. For example, today is the Feast of St. Francis. Most people have heard of Franciscans. You know, have a special call to serve the poor and the things. My wife and I are associated with one of the great families is the Carmelite family uh, from Palestine, from Mount Carmel in Palestine. And if you look at a Carmelite's room, came to our house, you'd see it. It might strike you as odd at first. You'll see in one part of the room, you'll see a crucifix with Jesus dying on the cross. 
or dead on the cross, but you'll also see a plain cross. You'll always see both in different parts of the room. There's a plain cross and one's a crucifix. Why? The second image is a reminder that the cross of Jesus is not something to admire from afar. It's something to pick up and walk after. Jesus said, take up your cross. When he talked about his death, he said, anyone who would be my disciple has to take up their cross. So it's reminding us that the right response to Jesus' cross, Jesus cross isn't simply to thank him, as we certainly do for what he's done, but to take up our own cross and follow. So let us pray today for that special grace from God to truly, with our hearts and joyfully, take up our cross and follow Jesus.